Yes, sir. It's that time of year. What's going on over here? What the hell is that? You know what it is, bitch. Bang! Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Sports Antidote, episode number 90. We never really wanted him, but I wish we kept him. I'm your host, Danny Belts. We are getting into my favorite time of the year. How about that clip I just played, Furman versus Chattanooga? What an unbelievable ending. We'll be talking about that real quick, along many other things. Gonzaga made me look pretty stupid for San Francisco. Aaron Rodgers, we need to talk about this because this makes a very interesting situation in Green Bay. Conference tournament battles, they're just so much fun to watch. Uh, I have a hot take on Jesse Somalier or Juicy. He's going to be going back to court real quick. I have to talk about this. And we're pretty much stick to basketball. I don't think Bro Exotic is going to be able to make this one. Maybe Tommy Bench will be on. No Coach O, so pretty straightforward show uh, today, I think. <clears throat> you just never really know what happens on the Sports Antelope. Be sure and rate, subscribe, and review. Reach out and touch a brother. Tell somebody about the Sports Antelope. Follow us on Instagram at the Sports Antelope. Or follow me at Danny underscore Belts with a Z on Instagram as well. Follow us on Instagram. Cuck you if you don't. <clears throat> I usually don't talk about episodes to come during one, but I do have one next week that's going to be out of left field, very powerful, uh, very original, even more so than usual. Like I said, in comparison to some things happening in March Madness, as we get ready to play the man's game. You want to play the man's game, okay? Close. <laughs> get out there and sell them. You have their leads. You have their context. What, you think they, they came here to get out of the rain? Man, don't walk on a lot. Lessie wants to buy. <laughs> so, yeah, the man's game is, this is what the man's game isn't. Putting together a little bracket and thinking your eighth seed is going to beat this ninth seed and getting mad when Mississippi State wins their play-in game and beats the team that you had because they only have 18 wins and the 12th seed you had upsetting the four doesn't and everything goes wrong and your bracket goes to shit and you tell everybody at the bar about it and you tell your neighbor but no one cares and you cuck. No one cares about your bracket. Let me repeat, no one cares. Brackets are for losers. Losers. So go ahead, talk about your fantasy football team and the injuries and how you would have won, yeah. Talk about how your bracket sound like Uncle Rico from, you know, we would have won state and they put me in back in 82. No one cares about your bracket. Let's play the man's game. Let's bet against the spread like men are supposed to do. And we'll be getting into that in volume next week as there are plenty of schools we need to discuss. You know a few of them that I like. Some of them you may not. And yeah, if you do a bracket, whatever. I'm not saying you're a loser. I'm just saying it's just stupid. Like it's, 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 it's dumb. So whatever. But if you uh, do want to play the man's game, we'll be doing that all summer with baseball as well. I can't believe you bet baseball. I can't believe you don't bet baseball. I love how everyone thinks it's just so like uh, 
like majestic to get your ass kicked on an NFL Sunday. Like, yeah, I lost, but I mean, I had the Vikings plus three, dog. They, they you know, oh yeah, because it all spends the same and it doesn't lose the same. When you lose money betting in the NFL, I guess it's just warrants a badge of courage or something. Yeah, no. <sighs> Be sure and rate, subscribe, and review. But say it one more time. Follow the Sports Antelope. Do it, baby. Reach out, touch, brother. Tell somebody about the Sports Antelope. We don't grow this organically like it has been. It will not grow. So please, go out and do that. Because next week, I have one that I've been waiting to drop on that ass for a while. I'll give you a prequel. I'll give you a little hint. It's coming from a Christian rock band. What? <laughs> that is correct. You heard me. And a very powerful lyric. Uh, that regardless if you're an atheist or a believer or in between, it will be very impactful from what I had to kind of go through in January to what I'm kind of doing now in the poker rooms and how I look at things, being as where it's just different for me. And it might be different for you as well. So this is going to be a good one. We're going to tie that into some good old-fashioned man's game, first round gambling ATS like men are supposed to do. So anyway, let's talk about Juicy Somalia real quick. So he's going to get back in front uh, of the courts here in Chicago, <clears throat> and there's speculation that he will not go to jail. Most of you know who this guy is. If you didn't know, real quick, and I find it hard to believe anyone would that lives under the sun, but he basically staged the most elaborate, stupid uh, hate crime in the history of the world. It made the thing that Bubba Wallace did is it Bubba Wallace or Bubba Watson? I always get him. Watson's the golfer. Bubba Wallace with the noose, the black NASCAR guy, uh, made that look like a legitimate gripe. As we sent more FBI agents to that than we did the last mass shooting, which you didn't hear about because he was a muzzy. That's right. If he was a white man named Danny Belts, there'd be Australian reporters coming through the chimney to get into my house. But because he's a muzzy... And it's not news because it happens all the time. Bounce, what are you talking about? Go look it up. Happened last week. Whatever. <laughs> so Juicy Somalier uh, is going gonna, is gonna to get up there and stick to the claim that he still did not set this whole thing up. Now, this is even more ridiculous than O.J. Simpson's case at this point. Clearly, I mean, this is the dumbest, most undumbest thing of all times it worked out well for him because bad publicity is still good publicity. I still believe that. And no one knew who this guy was. That's the funniest part about Chappelle's take on this. No one watches Empire, dude. No one knows who – and not even that. Like, white people really aren't. <laughs> no one knows who Jesse Smiley was. Like, nine, I don't think anyone on the set knew who he was. But that aside, uh, here, here, here's what needs to happen here. So this, this kid, aside from – sparking unnecessary racial controversy that our media feeds off of like a leech. Uh, it, it, it's pathetic. Knowing the whole time this was fake, there's no way anyone actually believed this. I mean, the minute you read the specifics, it was pretty obvious this was the stupidest thing in the history of the world. Like this is some, not even the Lifetime Movie Network is gonna make a movie about this. And that's a big statement because they're still making movies about Jody Arias. She is not ugly. <laughs> Put that out there now. But what needs to happen here, and the, Michelle Obama and, and President Barry are already kind of advocating for him. This is, this is ridiculous. They're friends, 
And, you know, they're already, the judge is probably going to show some leniency, and he can't. I'm sorry. He faces up to three years uh, in a state penitentiary, and I'd give him all three. And, and here's the reason why. It's not because of necessarily what he did or when he did it. It's how he did it. And that how goes into the ever more important question, why? So literally the why would be trying to start a forest fire when a house is burning down right next to it. Instead of trying to put out the house, you're trying to burn down the whole block by unnecessary racial sparking gasoline Molotov cocktail type thing. Just boom goes the dynamite and people are still you know, taking the side of he's innocent. It's, it, no one believes that. But the thing is that examples need to be made even with people like this, regardless of what color or sexual orientation you had – and the precedent needs to be set that you cannot do this and go to club fed or be on house arrest or do community service. You're going to jail. Yes. Whether or not you put him in the gen pop or not, I don't know. I don't care. But this needs to stop. And there needs to be a very stern precedent set that if you stage these hate crimes, which it's amazing that hate crimes never happen to white people. Let's just talk about this for one second. When my best friend was murdered in Atlanta, July 7, 2007, for a couple shekels when his head got blown off in his car, the only reason that I'm a, alive was because I was too drunk to make that flight. Otherwise, I'm popped right there in the passenger seat, but whatever. We'll get into that one day. That was a crime of opportunity. If my brother and I go carjack a black person in New Orleans, we are making news in Antarctica because that is now a hate crime. I don't understand how hate crime never really applies to anyone that's white, regardless of what side of the political fence you're on or even the gender. It just doesn't matter. But, I mean, this is an actual hate crime that Jesse Smollett, Smollett did, and it needs to be prosecuted accordingly, and they need to really hammer him, but they won't. And I know that, that you know, this is the sports antidote, but I mean, you've listened to this. We have new listeners, and we're always going to dig into some different things, especially Tommy Bench, not so much the sports. But an example needs to be made. This judge will have a chance to do it, and I hope that commissioner in Chicago still stays on the path of sternness here for holding up that, op- that department and raping them on overtime, and he still hasn't repaid the overtime that they were forced to pay these detectives. He still hasn't repaid it. This guy's a piece of shit. Full stop, period. He needs to go to jail. I'll end it on that one. Gonzaga, they also need to go to jail. Because what they did was not only make me look really stupid, they made me look really, really stupid. I'm pretty good at this gambling thing, uh, if you didn't know. And the thing is, Gonzaga, I said I wouldn't want to play them, and they match up with San Francisco after Lax podcast, and they've already dealt them, they've already dispatched of them twice, so I didn't think third time wouldn't really be a charm. Laying about, what, 13 and a half points, 14 points. They basically blew the game open late second half. They led by about 15 to 20 the entire game and then got it up to 27 points. 27 points with a team like Gonzaga with 12 minutes left. There's not, I don't need to watch this game anymore. There's other stuff I can do because I'm going to win this wager. And... All of a sudden, I checked the phone, and it's like a 16-point game. I'm like, what? 
And then it's a 13-point game, and then it's a 7-point game, and then I'm like, well, I hope you just lose. (laughs) I mean, this is scary right now. We have a new listener up in Spokane, Washington. Shout out to to my boy up there. And uh, he lives in Wokane, excuse me. But uh, (laughs) big Gonzaga fan, obviously. Him and I have shot the breeze on Gonzaga several times, and even he kind of can feel the the current in the water kind of going a different direction. You know, I know they beat St. Mary's. Um, that was really weird. If you had the 13-and-a-half or 12-and-a-half in that game, the last 30 seconds became really interesting, particularly when Gonzaga missed that free throw. But that aside, uh, this is just not a good thing in my opinion, for Gonzaga. Coughing up that lead to the Dons, getting them back in striking distance, blowing a four-touchdown lead. Are you kidding me? Yes, I said touchdowns. Blowing that against a team that's, for all intents and purposes, inferior to them, and then kind of having to duke them out with St. Mary's again, but not really. St. Mary's a really good team. I'm not sure Gonzaga's in the best spot walking into this tournament right now, and I'm not sure they're the best team in the country uh, right now. Now, what happens in this tournament, well, that's going to be remain to be seen. But as far as it goes for me, coming into the tournament, they do not look nearly as impressive as they did two, um, two months ago and, or even a month ago. And as history has told us and as I followed very closely, how you enter this tournament is probably how you're going to exit this tournament. Coming in, going down... Usually, you don't go the other way. Uh, You need to come into this thing going up. That doesn't mean you need to win your conference championship. No. Uh, Gonzaga did. But it's not like, you know, if you're you're UVA and you go to the ACC, you know, championship game and you lose, like, that's a bad thing. No, I'm just saying that typically how you enter this game or enter this tournament is how you're going to exit. And and I just, I don't know. It just doesn't look good for Gonzaga right now. Well, have we paying close attention to that one for sure as we get into the first round next week. And these conference tournaments, I played that that shot earlier. You know, if you didn't see it, Wofford's playing Chattanooga. That's the clip I played in the beginning of the show. And uh, it's a three-point game. And then Chattanooga ties it in overtime on a three. And then Wofford gets the ball, goes down, makes an incredible layup to go up by two. And Chattanooga gets the ball. They inbound it to their point guard, his senior. He runs over to half court. They don't call timeout. He goes to the left side of the court where he gets double covered. They're trying to press. They're trying to basically trap him right there. And he jumps floating to the left side. And he's right-handed and throws up about a 30-foot runner and nuts it. I mean, it looked good the minute he let it go. I was like, oh, boy. And that just shows, you know, I love these small conferences. This is what's awesome about it this time of year. You literally have these two warriors. Let's call them individual warriors. And they're battling each other to go to war with Goliath. So, like, whoever Chattanooga plays, they, they, they probably they won't have to do a play-in game, but they're probably going to see Gonzaga. <laughs> they'll probably see Kansas. And, and it's it's cool because... You do get out in your weight class to fight someone far way out of it. But even then, and yeah, there's the one-off. Yes, UVA lost to some community college on the eastern shore of Maryland. We remember that. But typically these games are blowouts. But it's, it must be really cool to be that 16 seed because you have nothing to lose. 
You're going to play in front of the biggest crowd you've ever played in in your life, in front of one of the best teams in the country, a top four team in the country or the number one team in the country, and you have the distinct honor and privilege to play this team on national television. Floor is yours. Do what you want. You want to upset? Try it. You want to show? Show. Get blown out? Whatever. But what a cool experience. I mean, that's something you can tell your kids about. Yeah, I went to the tournament, and yeah, we played Kansas. We played Gonzaga. We played Baylor. We played Auburn in the first round, and we lost by 26. But I, I, you know, I had eight points, and I guarded this guy. That, I mean, that's just fascinating stuff that you really don't see in college baseball as much, although college baseball is very similar to how the NCAA tournament's set up. It's just a lot different in their postseason, and then college football is nothing like it with the bowl season, uh, completely different than this. And they're all unique in their own, and I love all three, but this one might even be more favorite of a time for me than college bowl season for these reasons right here. Yeah, these teams, you know, Chattanooga doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell to win the national championship, uh, but, you know, don't tell them that. And also, don't try to take anything away from them as they just won in ridiculous fashion. And, that, you know, good for them. And it's awesome. And that's what makes this whole thing just so incredible. Even if you're not into sports gambling or heavily into basketball, there's still something that pulls you towards, you know, these stories and, and the constant underdog <clears throat> that we all root for in our subconscious, whether, you know, you want to admit that or not. No one really wanted him. But I wish we kept him. What's that mean? I'm glad you asked. So when I was working in my initial sales job, the first sales job I had, I'll try to make this as not as quick as I can, but I've touched on this before, but not like this. So I was like an intern at this third-party ultrasound diagnostic imaging repair company in Longmont, Colorado. Long months, like right in between Boulder and Denver. And uh, they call it Long Tucky. Still the best sports bar I've ever been to in my life is in this city. It's called the Pump House, or I called it the Pumpus. The Pump House in this place of the Pump House called the Red Zone. Best sports bar I've ever been in. Humongous statement. But um, I stand next to that. I'll die on that hill. It's incredible. You can go there also with 30, 40 bucks, eat and get shit-faced and and get away with it because it's cheap. It's long, it's long tucky. And this company was, things were going really well. And I started off, they didn't really know where to put me. So I started off as basically the janitor. <laughs> I was, you know, not really, but may as well have been just hanging out in the laboratory, hang out in shipping and receiving, customer service, doing all these things as they groomed me to be an outside sales, which inevitably happened. And then when the merger happened, I moved down to Houston. That's when the whole thing started. But what happened was they took our, this company, they took a rival company and a company that did something completely different, threw us all in a pot, stirred it together, and called it gumbo. Well, that's not how this works. So instead of being good at one thing, they tried to be good at seven things. How many times have I mentioned this on the show? I appreciate a restaurant that has a one or two page menu. You know, if I want to read War and Peace, I'll go to the library. I don't, I don't need this Cheesecake Factory menu here. And, um, you know, just be good at a few things, but be great at them. Excuse me, be great at a few things instead of better at more and average at a bunch. But this company, they wanted to be terrible at a lot, and they were. So 
without getting into any of the names. But this company had aspirations of being terrible at a lot of things, and that's exactly what happened. Every company was fine on their own until we all got together in the powwow, and that's when everything went to hell. Um, you know, you try to mix mammography, CT, MR, ultrasound, patient monitoring. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of focuses. And they wanted to cover them with service contracts. You see, the company I was with was doing transactional transducer repair. In other words, a transesophageal probe, the one that goes down your throat for surgery, down your gullet. You know, those break a lot. You can buy a new one from the OEM or we can fix it for you. You can buy, you know, if you have a car and the radiator goes out, you don't buy a new car, you fix the part. That was kind of our sell point. Why would you buy a new probe from General Electric, Phillips, or Siemens? Don't do that. Just get it fixed from us and we'll throw a 90-day warranty on it. And they had a very specific focus and it was just that. And this other company that merged, they kind of did that. We did most of their repairs for them, and then we would just charge them. They would put it in their boxes, upcharge their customers. <laughs> they basically sourced it all out to us because we were the better one at doing that. And they sold a bunch of parts and had all this inventory in their parts room and all this other stuff. And the other company was the one that serviced all the heavy stuff, the MR, CT, and things like that. <clears throat> and you put all that together, like communism or socialism, I guess it looks good on paper, but as far as executing that, it does not work. And this did not work. Inevitably, General Electric ended up buying this company just to get rid of them. They bought them just to shut them down. They were like, all right, we're going to buy you. We're tired of competing against you, and you're all fired. <laughs> That's basically what happened. I was way gone before then. I got out. I saw that coming two years prior. But anyway, in the initial merger, you had all these different salespeople from three different companies were cutting people's territories up. There was some animosity. There was some hostility. Of course, people are now are working with you that you've been directly competing against for years. It was weird. And, and more importantly, it should be noted that trying to do that hodgepodge type thing is nearly impossible. And, and they, they tried, threw a bunch of money at it from this private equity group that had bought all three companies and renamed it. So stupid. Everybody was doing fine on their own, <laughs> really. So there was one guy that came from the kind of the offset company, the one that really specialized in MR. But the thing is, is that they couldn't really do initially what they were selling they could do. Imagine that, a sales guy selling something that they can't do. Wow, that's never happened. So in other words, we were bragging about the capabilities to service these CT and MR machines that are worth over a million dollars. The magnets alone in these things, I don't even know what they cost now. Back then, it was still about a quarter million. Now it's probably the magnet itself. I don't even know what that cost. But in order to service this stuff in a third party was wildly difficult because most of the uh, people that use these machines in a hospital or an outpatient clinic or whatever are going to trust the manufacturer uh, to service these million-dollar assets and not some third-party Joe Schmo company that says they can do it. Now, the company that I was working for did have service people from the manufacturers. So in other words, they pulled some of the service people out, but they still didn't have access to all these parts. And yeah, they were smart, but we didn't have the capability, the inventory, the know-how, or even the basic logistics to service a national platform 
for the most expensive pieces of imaging in a hospital. Ultrasound being the cheapest, basically, right? That's what I specialized in. And then these guys wanted to do all this expensive stuff. Long story short, it got very convoluted. They were kind of pushing me out of ultrasound and getting me into CT and MR. And then you're getting me away from my base here. You get me away from what I was raised in, what I'm comfortable with, and where I'm going to contribute to the bottom line within this company and how I'm going to hit my numbers. And then, conversely, on the other side, there was a guy that was my age and he was kind of a weirdo, but I liked him. But they were trying to get him away from CT and MR and mammography and they were kind of moving him into ultrasound. You see how stupid this is? So you're trying to get me away from my strength, get him away from his strength and throw us both into each other's weaknesses. It was just, what, what you know, let sleeping dogs lie, dude. Let me do what I'm going to do. Let him do what he's going to do. But these guys are way too smart for that. They never really wanted this dude from the get-go. But I bet they wish they would have kept him. <laughs> so what happened was I got to talking to this guy over time and he had some sort of autism. Not, nothing crazy. He's very smart. But he had a slight social tick about him. And the, the, the company thought that defect, kind of like how most people thought Kevin Euclid to be an idiot because he squats like a, you know, waddles like a duck, as they say on Moneyball, albeit, you know, the guy's the Greek god of walks and baseball efficiency for almost a decade for the Red Sox. At the same time, that's kind of how he was viewed, even though his appearance and his personal defects certainly uh, were paled in comparison to his ability to, as I like to say, execute the company strategy. And what's more important? Because we had another sales guy who was the silver tongue, who had the $2,000 suits, who had the polished shoes, the BMW, but unbeknownst to everyone, was up to his eyeballs in debt and never hit his sales number. So which one would you rather? Well, I'd rather the former. And the thing is, is that in this case, he got ostracized from the get-go. I even remember talking to my manager going, this kid is a genius. He used to work for Phillips as an ops guy. Now he's in sales, and it wasn't my uncle. For those of you who think I'm talking about that, <laughs> no, this is, a, this is another kid from another company. He was my age at the time. He has an operational mind, but the savvy to sell. It's the most dangerous thing. Tommy Bench has this in what he does. He has the ability to sell as well as a very heavy, heavy grasp on operations being as where he's the VP of ops. Well, I'm not going to say the company, but the, you've heard of the company. <laughs> but the point is, is that a regional, I don't know, whatever. He makes a lot of money. But, you know, in this instance, taking him away from that strength, pushing him into over here and then kind of dismissing his ability because of some other things that they saw on the surface when they never really took the time to understand the core. Now, I find this to be something that we do all the time. You know, they say looks are superficial, beauty comes from within and all this. You know, it, it is kind of a true statement, kind of is. But I mean, you know, when you first meet someone, it's not like when I first saw my wife, you know, smoking little blonde, I didn't go, I didn't look at her and go, holy crap, look at the morals on her. <laughs> oh my God, look at that honesty. <laughs> it's like, boy, <laughs> look at that. She's got integrity. <laughs> That's some nice round integrity. But no, I mean, I, you know, of course. So we're going to have that initial shallow, carnal, whatever you want to call it thing. And you get to know someone. And then, of course, you can 
you know, that just improves the way they look or, or helps maybe the way they don't. I don't know either way, but the point is in sales, that's kind of the same thing. You need to, like, just like in Moneyball with Kevin Euclid, don't worry that he waddles like a duck. He gets on base. He gets on base. And this dude got on base. Within the first few months, he had already lined up all of these contracts to be executed out from a service standpoint. You sell these service contracts at six figures a year and you get, I don't remember the rate, but if you sold a cheap contract just on a one-off machine, you're looking at a 10 grand pop. That's just one machine. This dude had tons of them lined up, but they kept moving him away from that and getting him into the cheap-ass ultrasound stuff, which is what I specialized in, and it just this is why it just made no sense to me at all until one day I realized what they were doing and they brought him in for political reasons because of someone he was related to within that company to make a statement they never really wanted him. In the face of him profiting immensely to both his bottom line and the company's P&L, in the face of that, they still didn't really want him. But I bet they wish they kept him. Hold that thought. I've talked about Jordan Love a lot on this show. If you don't know who Jordan Love is, he was the quarterback from Utah State, the only scholarship he was offered, Utah State. His sophomore year, he broke every school record, and then basically the coaching staff turned over, and I think he lost his entire offensive line. And then in 2019, his numbers went down, rightfully so. Same thing happened to Josh Allen at Wyoming, but whatever. We're still staring at college numbers like that matters. It, it doesn't matter at all. What matters is ability. We'll get to that shortly. But Jordan Love, the Packers traded up for Jordan Love. And it looked like at the time he was the heir apparent for, in my opinion, the greatest quarterback of all times, Aaron Rodgers. That's right. I said that. And before everyone goes nuts about Brady being the GOAT, I, am, I will go 15 rounds with you, not to play the devil's advocate, but on how there's so many things that happened to win all these Super Bowls outside of Brady's control. And he's only really had two good Super Bowls where he popped off. Most of them were average and a couple were really bad. You know, did he make the interception versus the Seahawks? Was he making these clutch kicks? Everyone talks about the Falcons comeback. Yeah, was he getting the three and outs on the other side and forcing turnovers? I speak of turnovers. He threw three and one half versus Green Bay, and they still won. I guess he's that good. He throws three picks, and he still wins. Like, yeah, that's how that works. Anyway, Rodgers is ridiculous. Full stop, period. There's no arguing that. And if you want to go ahead and say Brady's better, well, then he's up there with Peyton Manning. I don't even put Drew Brees in that top three there. Joe Montana, perhaps, as well, but whatever. It's very, very unique or elite company. But Aaron Rodgers, at the time, if you remember, was coming off kind of a, not really a bad year, but, you know, they just got dogged by the Niners in the playoffs again. They got crushed by him twice. Boy, the Niners own the pay. Packers owe them one. But I think that, you know, they drafted him and then they traded up for him. And then all the grumblings of, well, I can't, well, Jordan Love doesn't translate and all of this and all of this. And then, as you know, Aaron Rodgers, that lights a fire under his ass. He wins the MVP. And then he just won another MVP in a two runaway MVPs. As in, you shouldn't even have voted the last two years. The numbers are astonishing. 
what's he have, like 85 touchdowns and six interceptions or something stupid? With 13 wins back to back? It's just you don't even vote at that point. But the question becomes with Jordan Love was much like the person that I was kind of under, or not under, but as a peer to in the sales company is I have a very distinct feeling that Jordan Love was brought in for political reasons. I don't think they ever wanted him. I don't know that for a fact. I think Green Bay's front office looks really smart right now. Yeah, they traded up for Jordan Love. When you trade up for someone, you don't do it for political stature. You're doing it because you want that guy to play. Did they ever really? Did they know that Rodgers would win two MVPs in a row? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. But it certainly worked out in their favor because now they've signed Aaron Rodgers and he'll retire as a Packer. Now you have Jordan Love and people are saying his stock has dropped. Let me remind you, when Aaron Rodgers took over for Brett Favre the first time, he looked like he never played football in his life through multiple interceptions. And in the first season that he started, they went 6-10 and 10, and he looked like he never played football in his life. So... Don't be so quick to judge Jordan Love on the minimal amount of minutes he's gotten. Both the situations not ideal. Also, it should be pretty much understood, Green Bay's offense is predicated nearly 99.9% on Aaron Rodgers' ability to change plays at the line, very similar to how Sean Payton and Drew Brees operated. You have a coach on the field. These guys' football IQs are off the charts, and Aaron Rodgers is the smartest person in the room everywhere he goes. Say what you want. Guy was rocking a 38539 at Cal Berkeley, and he's the smartest guy in the room. His intelligence is ridiculously high. I mean, the dude's well read. Whether you think he's a douche or not, I don't care. Let's call it balls and strikes. He's the smartest guy in the room. I'm not sure who played who here. If he played the Packers or if the Packers played him. I mean, if they worked him back into shape to win these two MVPs and win all these games, albeit not a Super Bowl, or if Rodgers got to them and got all his money, does Rodgers really even need money? Um, you know, it's America. Get as much as you can. Get yours, shorty. I don't care. But at the same time, I don't think they ever wanted Jordan Love. Just like this company didn't want that guy. Let's go back to that real quick. They ended up firing this kid. They fired him. They, I'll spare you the story on why they brought him in and why they fired him. But they brought him in to make a statement to another salesperson. The similarities in both these situations are startling to me. However, in this instance, it should be known or noted, this kid, like I said, was no spring chicken. He's pretty smart. And he started his own business as a direct competitor. Not only did he pigeonhole these guys by becoming becoming a direct competitor, He formed an alliance with GE, General Electric, (laughs) one of the most powerful entities in the world, if it's not the most powerful, aside from maybe some specific banks. But GE is ridiculous. Now, he didn't sit down with the CEO of GE. They have 10 billion divisions, CEO of, of the company. But what he was able to do was basically make some sort of truce with these guys found a really niche market in which he was able to sell, in which they had no market share anyway. They could support him from a service standpoint. So basically he could contract through GE as a 1099 guy, and he went on 
to be one of the major reasons why he put that company I worked for after I left, not out of business, but in handcuffs and put their mouth on the curb. They did all but stomp on it and say goodnight. General Electric was the one that did that when they turned the lights off and said, we'd rather not compete against you anymore. You're all fired. Paid a few people who had some ownership and that was it. But they never wanted that guy. But boy, boy, I bet they wish they kept him. Now, I'm not saying that Jordan Love is going to have the same impact that the Packers would have had with him that this company had by letting that guy go. But I do believe Jordan Love to be an absolute stud. And if you go look at some of the passes this kid has made, I don't care who it's against. Some of these passes are just the caliber of the NFL of which you just have to be able to do the hardest pass in football over the corner, under the safety. He can do that from almost 40 yards. He has probably a top five arm in the NFL. He can move. And his stock has, dr- has plummeted a little bit because of his not-so-well performances when he's had his time to get in there. And I don't think the Packers ever wanted him. And I think the Packers front office looks really smart for now. I think Aaron Rodgers looks smart. I think everybody won there. I don't want to talk about that, though. What I do want to talk about is I think the New Orleans Saints need to take a, take a shot at Jordan Love, and I think you can get him for a second-round pick. We do have a ton of Saints fans that listen to it down here. It's not a Saints podcast. But uh, clearly, if you're a Saints fan, you can see the marginal free agency quarterback thing is not working with Jameis, not really. Certainly not with Simeon, albeit not really his fault. Definitely not with the Mormon running back at quarterback, Taysom Hill. Not with the missionary Mormon running back that was under center. Uh, that, just, that was a sideshow freak freak show that should not ever happen again. That experiment is over. <clears throat> I hope so now, but whatever. Keep him on the team, not his quarterback, or maybe like fifth-string quarterback, super, super emergency junior quarterback. I don't know. My point is, though, that there's a diamond in the rough here, and you're going to get this kid cheap. A second-round pick, I think you could if you're the New Orleans Saints. I don't think the Packers ever wanted him. I think they saw this situation coming. I honestly think they're ahead of the game. And I'm hoping that Mickey Loomis and Dennis Allen can get ahead of this one and understand that you're either drafting Matt Corral if you're going after a quarterback or you're not, or you're going to chase free agency, maybe Derek Carr. I don't know. But I would like to see Carson Wentz come down here for sure. But he went to the Redskins. He went to the Washington Redskins. So he can't come down here to the New Orleans Saints. But we'll see. Interesting, though, either way, a sales guy that they didn't want, that they brought in for political purposes, inevitably would indirectly be responsible for deep-sixing this whole thing. And how funny would it be if the Packers traded up for a guy that they never really wanted, (laughs) who then went to a team who would come back and knock them out of the playoffs with Rodgers under center on the other end. (laughs) That would disprove atheism. Because that would just be, there has to, that would prove there's a God. (laughs) Be sure and rate, subscribe, and review. Once again, check us out at the Sports Antelope. Reach out, touch a brother. Tell somebody about the Sports Antelope. Reach out, touch a brother. And tell somebody about the Sports Antelope. And get ready for episode 91 next week. Because I'm bringing the pain. The originality is coming. I'm bringing it. And I'm coming.
shots fired. Tommy Bench, jumping on the sports analog. How you doing there, pal? Doing well, Chief. Doing well. Good, good. Um, question for you real quick. If indeed we found there was oil reserves on a planet far away inhabited by blue people, would you be inclined to drill? Drill, baby, drill. <laughs> drill. <laughs> there practically isn't a place on this planet that my answer is not drill, baby, drill. I like it. And speaking of drilling, boy, I was uh, in rural Mississippi. Uh, a lot of I, I did that stickers on the gas station pumps out there. Not exactly uh, a haven of the blue in rural Mississippi. I just ordered a hundred pack of the I did that with Biden and a hundred pack of the Trump where he's pointing and says Biden did that. I should get them in the next six to seven days. Good, good. Yeah, I have a couple myself. Um, and uh, I will tell you, the conversations amongst the locals in the gas station, some of those gas stations are also like, you know, make makeshift restaurants. Right. There was some grumblings about the truckers in there. Diesel, even in areas like that, is out of control. It really is out of control. Not to go down that rabbit hole. Why don't we drill uh, in a different one? So uh, go ahead. Take the floor here. Ukraine, oil, all this stuff going on. Right. In Ukraine, your oil. Right. So uh, for people who don't know. When I first got out of the Marine Corps, I worked for an oil and gas company, an exploration production company. So this is no kidding, a company that would go, you know, arrange leases, buy the mineral rights or lease the mineral rights from people, arrange the land leases and and ability to drill oil wells and then frack them and then manage the production of those wells. Um, Now, by no means does this make me an expert on global oil markets and commodities trading, trading and And does it even make me close to an expert on the area of the oil and gas industry I was involved in? But there are some takeaways and some things we'll share and talk about here over the next couple of minutes. All right. So the the big question, why are gas prices going up? Well, simple supply and demand. Look, there is an element of the demand has come roaring back in terms of the global economy is at least it's still on the on the track to getting back to. and, And, you know, there's pockets of the U.S. where the economy is essentially surpassed pre-pandemic levels. I think I saw some report that Texas now has more jobs than it had before the pandemic. So we're, we're getting to the point where we're hitting demand levels that are commensurate with pre-pandemic levels, almost. But supply in a lot of ways has not recovered. Now you can ask, well, why is it not recovered? There's, there's kind of two big elements to oil and gas supply. One is, no kidding, how much of the stuff gets pumped out of the ground. But then there's an element of refining, right? Because even if we could pump 20 billion barrels a day, which we on average use any, anywhere from 18 to 20 million barrels a day of, of various oil products, okay? Um, even if we could pump 10 times that, you have to ask, well, how much could we refine and turn into usable products, whether everything from gasoline, diesel fuel, kerosene, jet fuel to plastics and uh, base uh, feedstock for fertilizer and things like that. So what's interesting, I I got two screens in front of me. On on one, I've got from the EIA, the U.S. Energy Information Administration. So this is the official government. This is the data. I mean, there is no other more authoritative source. I don't don't even think the API, which is a right-leaning oil and gas think tank, I don't even think they would criticize this information. It's widely accepted. This is the gold standard for oil and gas information. So when you look what the... Um, utilization of refining capacity is, you know, in 2010, it was hovering around the low 80%. 
when around that time in 2010, we were just coming off the recession of 08, 09. So capacity got down into this sort of the high 70s, low 80s. Then it started creeping back up until you hit this stable state where refining capacity was in the high 80s, low 90s. And you look at the numbers right before the pandemic, if you smooth it out, we're essentially sitting in the low to mid 90s. Um, you know, when economic activity was really bustling along, there was high demand, but there was also good supply. Then, like every other economic indicator, it fell off a cliff uh, once the pandemic broke out. However, it, it's as of June 2021, it was 92.4%, 90.9. I mean, it's it dipped down in October 2021, probably because that's the start of the winter maintenance cycle. And then it's come back up the last month that data is available is December 2021, 91.1%. So, some people have tried to point to this. The, re the reason I focused on this and went into this first, some people try to point to this and say, well, you know, it's, it's more than just the supply of oil and gas. There's, there's capacity issues. And yet, look, we're, we're at the same capacity and we're at the same utilization that we were at in, through most of 2018, 2019, when the economy was humming along nicely. So I, I really don't want to hear that. It's possible some capacity has come offline, but the point is, there's a little slack. We could bump that up a couple of percentage points, get into the mid-90s. And, and when you start approaching these above 90% levels, they're going to bring other capacity online. So let's set that argument aside. All right, let's dive into oil production. The U.S. hit a high point in December 2019, excuse me, November of 2019, of 12.9 million barrels a day. Now, we, we were like 40,000 barrels short of hitting 13 million, Okay. And when you look at the line, what you see is from 2012 is a gentle slope. And then there's a bit of a dip going down in late 2014 through 2015. And then it starts picking back up in 2017. Essentially, once Trump got in office and the economy started growing again, the amount of production picked up because demand picked up, which raised the price enough to make it profitable. There, there was a stretch in 2015 and 2016 where you were hurting if you were an oil and gas operator. In fact, I got out of the industry in April of 2015 because I could see layoffs were coming. And I was right. About six weeks after I left, the company I was at had layoffs. About 12 weeks after that, they had another round. They actually ended up reorganizing through some bankruptcy a couple of years ago. Um, so all of that to say, there were those tough times when prices were really low because production was really high. So as the economy and demand started picking up, started, started utilizing that extra production, then, of course, like every other economic indicator, the pandemic happened, it fell off a cliff, dropped down to 9.7 million barrels a day. And it's, it's still hovering in this depressed area where it's around 11.5 million barrels a day. So we're missing about a million and a half barrels of U.S. oil production per day. Okay, if Biden tomorrow approved the Keystone XL pipeline, would that fix the problem? It would not fix the problem, but it would send a signal. And, and let's talk about what signals can do. I mentioned that I got out of the oil and gas industry in April of 2015. In November of 2014, the OPEC countries got together in Vienna. And, and U.S. frackers were getting nervous because the price was starting to tick down from a high point of about 100 bucks a barrel. It was starting to get in the 90s. We were seeing some days where it would trade in the 80s. And the OPEC oligarchs basically got together in Vienna and said, we are going to open up the spigots and try to kill the U.S. fracking revolution. And they did. Now, within two days, the price of oil collapsed to like 60 some dollars a barrel. 
no additional capacity had been brought online in that day or two. It's just markets react to pieces of information and because markets are always forward looking, they try to price in information you receive now to make assumptions about what prices will be in the future. So if Biden came out and said, I think we do need to get Keystone XL back online so that we can get oil and gas down to our refineries in Houston and push up that capacity and really max out that utilization, it would send a signal that we're going to get serious about our U.S. oil and gas policy. Let alone, I I was listening to a podcast and they mentioned that there's nearly 500,000 barrels a day of capacity that could be brought online in North Dakota if federal land leases were approved. And, And what that is, is for the longest time, the government basically said, federal and state governments do this. They basically say to oil and gas companies, hey, you can come on our land and you will get a share of the mineral rights, you know, a share of whatever you can produce. But then the government gets some. So it's really a win win in terms of the government gets a cut. The oil and gas company gets a cut. It employs people. It, it satisfies the need for oil and gas production. Um, so you've just got this situation where we're missing a lot of production that could fairly quickly be brought back online. And that's the point I'm going to close with. All right. So people, you know, another one of these lies that gets told is, well, even if we did all that, it would take some time. As I was leaving the oil and gas company, I was at in in March of 2015, uh, they were getting ready to start drilling this, this well, it was called the Yale, I think 24-1H, 24 indicated the section number it was in, in that particular county. Yale, I think that series of wells they were naming after Ivy League schools. Uh, they, they would always pick a theme. I know, it seems kind of silly. And then the 1H is it's the first horizontal line in the section that's, that it's in. Usually at that time, it could be different now. It's been a little while. At that time, the target was to put eight, um, eight horizontal wells at a, you know, at, at a similar depth within a particular section um, of land area. So from the time the CEO of the company signed off on the authorization for expenditure, essentially the budget for the well to spend at that time, I believe it was about 2.6 to $2.7 million to drill the well. And you look at the potential returns and the expected production from the time he signed off on it until the time we hit first production, that's when the first nasty bit of oil mixed with a lot of salt water comes up and it still takes another 30 days until you start getting good oil. That's consistently oil and not as much, nasty water and and other byproducts it it took something like 32 days so from the time he said go now all the land leases and mineral rights all those things were negotiated ahead of time those deals were signed and they were contingent so in other words you work it out with the landowner you say look i'll give you five grand now that i have the first chance to drill this as long as i do it within three years and you'll get this split so all that was done but from the moment he said go we had oil coming out of the ground within 31 or 32 days. So it really is a situation where if Biden and the, the U.S. government said, we're going we're gonna to start doing these land leases again, within 30 to 60 days, you could really change the picture of the U.S. crude oil production um, and, and not have to import Russian oil and gas. So, look, some things outside of Biden's control, a lot of things could easily be affected with by, by the stroke of a pen. It could just be that easy. Yeah, well, it's amazing how easy a lot of things can be. But yet, for those easy, easy things to happen, decisions have to be made. And I think it's pretty apparent that some decisions don't want to be made, albeit they're very easy, clear-cut decisions 
regardless of what side of the fence you stand on, everybody's affected by ascending gas prices. And if you're living in certain states, I think they calculate, you know, in the heavy hitters, Jersey, California, New York, if you like drive or commute, it's an extra five to 75, 5,000 to almost $8,000 a year. Like you have to really budget that in now. That's like another school tuition for a kid or that's like a personal loan or something. To, to have another $8,000 you have to account for for doing the same exact thing while not getting a pay raise, I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and beat the dead horse, but I just feel like this is the one thing we can all say. And, of course, Pete Buttigieg gets up there and says, just buy an electric just car. buy a Tesla. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know what that's like doing? That's literally like driving, you know, under Tent City in New Orleans and going, why don't these guys just get a house? Right. Just <laughs> buy a house. Same mentality. It's just absolute insanity, no matter how you look at it. It, it. it is ridiculous. And what's frustrating is this this has been in the works for quite some time. And I remember listening to Eric Bowling. He used to be a Fox News guy. And he got in trouble for, I think, screwing around with other people there. But anyway, he used to be a commodities trader before he broke out on Fox Business and then Fox News. And, and he was on the Megyn Kelly podcast about a month and a half ago, a month ago. And he said, look. This was, in other words, before Russia invaded. We all knew it was going to happen, but it was before it actually happened. He said, look, oil is gonna, gas is going to 4 to $5 a gallon regardless of what happens. Now, Putin goes in there, it could go higher, 5 6 bucks. I, I do think we'll see 5 6 possibly $7 a gallon gas at some point um, in certain places. It might already be happening. But, again, it's just – it's so – I really want to want to grab all the Biden voters and say, are you happy? Are you happy? I mean, we've got land war in Europe and gas is obscenely expensive. Yeah, I'm, they're all. Happy. Are you happy? Of course. <laughs> no, I'm there's just... no mean tweets. No mean well, tweets. I know a couple of people that listen to the show that endure conversations like this. But at the same time, I mean, I'm, I'm always willing to have them uh, off or online. But yes, I, I do agree. But. Anyway, it's a pretty in-depth update on how that all works. Uh, but sorry, as these cats run in my office, that's uh, absurd. Um, I will beat them when this podcast is over. Uh, anything you want to close with, though, bro? Uh, looks like Carson Wentz is going back to the NFC East. Carson Wentz is going to the Redskins. The Redskins, that's right. Is, is what I heard. Uh, yeah, that's uh, interesting. Uh, you rarely see that happen, but he's back. And I'm sure he'll get a standing ovation from the lovely Philadelphia Eagles fans out there in the link. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah, of course. He'll probably get pelted with every – I hope it's snowing too. That would be great, like a nice old ice storm. Well, that's nice because then you can put the batteries inside the snowballs so they can't yes. see it when you're throwing it. Very highly efficient. Yes, if you're going to hum that, batteries inside of caked up ice. Yes, very nice. That's right. So, all right, time bench. Uh, appreciate having you on the show, man. And I uh, keep, uh, keep keeping a close eye on all this. Look forward to having you on next week. Will do out here.